and the tale of Sweeney Todd. His skin was pale and his eye was odd. He shaved the faces of gentlemen who never thereafter were heard of again. He trod a path that few have trod. Did Sweeney Todd, the demon barber of Fleet Street. Hello and welcome to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway for Sunday, March 26th, 2023. My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today we have Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier. Peter is a playwright, journalist, and historian with a number of books. His new book, The Book of Broadway Musical Debates, Disputes, and Disagreements, is now available and can be purchased wherever finer books are sold. Peter also has columns at Masterworks Broadway, Broadway Select, and many other places. Hello, Peter. Hi. Hello. Also <laughs> with us is Michael Portantier. Michael's a theater reviewer and essayist. He's the founder and editor of castalbumreviews.com. He is also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You can see his photography work at followspotphoto.com. Hello, Michael. Hello. <laughs> Hello. So... We were uh, chatting before we started recording, and it looks like uh, today's show is the face-off between the Battle of the Revivals, as uh, Peter and Michael got a chance to see Parade. So let's start off with that. Peter, what did you think about this uh, new production of Parade? Well, I think one of the most potent things we can take away from this production is that it needs a Presidium March. It looks so far away and remote when it was at Lincoln Center that, what, 25 years ago already? And uh, here, the action is played up close. Bless Michael Arden for doing that. So we can really see and hear better than we did uh, at Lincoln Center. I think that makes a big difference. The other thing is the dropping of a song called Big News. There is a song called Big News in this production, but there were two in the original production. And the problem was, this is the story of uh, uh, Leo Frank, who is accused of murdering Mary Fagan. We're led to believe he didn't. Um, Alfred Urey has gone on record saying he has his doubts, but uh, still, um, we are led to believe that he did not uh, do it, and um, where the implication is that a, a gentleman named Jim Conley did. So, um, there he is. Uh, one of the most profound things that happens in the show is when he he's put in jail and he says, I hope I don't have to spend the night here. Little mm. does he know what he's in for. So all this plays very, very well um, on a proscenium stage. But the thing was that in the original production, after the murder of Mary Fagan, the reporter came out. Uh, Britt Craig is his name. And uh, he's saying, big news. Nothing ever happens in Atlanta. But when you hear a song starting with big news and you've just been told that there's been a murder, you assume he's going to be singing about that. And I know what they were getting at. What they were really getting at was the fact that he hadn't heard yet. And he was lamenting about the fact that there was no big news in Atlanta, that the cat was up a tree and that these the Mickey Mouse things he had to write about. So, uh, but it it threw the audience off. I could feel it that they why, why uh, is is he singing about the murder? Does he? Mm. Murder? Yeah. So that song had been dropped. 
Now, when he sings big news, which was a reprise in the original production, it is big news. He's he's thrilled that he has a, a story that he could write about. And this shows um, what happens in the town, the hysteria that takes over Atlanta because of this situation. So uh, a much more potent uh, production than the original, um, even though the original was directed by Harold Prince. But Michael Arden can be very proud of what he's done here. The fact that it's in a smaller house, too. Um, it's so interesting that um, these theaters that you used to be reserved for plays uh, and this is the jacobs which used to be the royale of these which traditionally got plays um are getting musicals now partly because people want to see musicals more than plays and partly because they have to take what house is available but because it's in a smaller house um it really makes a profound difference and um so that's something too ironically enough uh, <laughs> um we uh, we went on record, uh, Michael and I, saying when we saw the Dear Evan Hansen movie, um, we didn't think that Ben Platt looked too old. Ironically enough here, he struck me as being too young. <laughs> now, the thing is, one has to remember and be fair, you know, uh, Leo Frank was 31 when he was um, executed. So Ben Platt isn't far away from that, is he? Um, but there was a callowness about him that um, the red cover didn't have in the original production so he does the job uh, don't misunderstand me it's 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 a fine performance but somehow it seemed a little callow to me uh true leo frank has to be a little naive um and um but still um callow came to mind more than anything else michaela diamond is lucille quite fine very very good indeed um who i really thought was wonderful um was a character that didn't have uh, singing to do, but um, I was really impressed with uh, Paul Alexander Nolan, who played the prosecuting attorney, um, mm. I thought he was really terrific. Um, uh, he knew what to do, and you know, it's often said that lawyers often have a history of uh, performing uh, in high school theater, college theater, because they know they're going to have to be performing when they get into the courtroom. And uh, this guy was a really good performer <laughs> in the courtroom. So, uh, so it's an excellent, excellent um, revival, and I'm delighted to see it back because uh, it's a tough show, granted, and uh, we <laughs> the other revival is going to be really pitted against. It's a tough show as well, which we'll soon be talking about, of course. But um, it is very moving, and it was very nice to hear some people respond at the end of the show with tears. I did see that happening, and um, I'm very glad when people are moved to that degree. Uh, I'm very glad, too, that I didn't see protesters outside as happened early on it seems they um lost their steam or their interest or felt there was no point but uh which indeed there there isn't but um in case you're wondering about going and saying "Ooh, am i going to run into those terrible Mm. people outside um uh, for all everybody i've talked to who went to different performances from the one that i attended uh, they're not there anymore so keep that in mind so that's a a consumer non-advisory of sorts let you know that but um but so don't let that keep you from seeing parade don't let anything from keep you see from seeing parade <laughs> all right michael what did you think well first of all peter i i guess that's news to me uh, alfred yuri himself has said that he has his doubts about whether leo actually killed mary fagan yeah he did say that at a radio interview wow I mean, I guess there are doubts in the sense that nobody can ever know for absolute. I think sure. I think that's really what he meant. Oh, okay. Else. I think. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. Think. Yeah, I no. Know, by the way. Okay. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly. Right, 
the I mean the way it's portrayed in the in the show. Oh, of course. Yeah, it's quite the opposite. You know. Mm-hmm. Uh, I well, I I am on record on how much I loved this production at City Center. Uh, it just uh, made the show work in a way that I I I, I just didn't think it did at Lincoln Center. And uh, I wasn't conscious of it uh, being because of the, sp- the space, uh, although who knows, uh, it, it may have had something to do with that. Um, y- y- that's a good point about uh, about that song, Peter, the big news. It's little things like that um, mm-hmm. can make a huge difference. Yeah, they sure can. You know, uh, I, th- I think this is so, so, so well done. Uh, I I I am I am surprised that um I'm not sure why this is that the deck of the stage is so high um at the theater at the Jacobs uh because what they've done is they've built up the entire deck of the stage you know the entire length and width of it uh considerably and then on top of that there's another platform and then on top of that in the center there's yet another uh, so it is very high. I, I, I think it, this would be a really good show uh, probably to see from the mezzanine <laughs> uh, because uh, the actors are going to be closer to you than in any other <laughs> show, probably. Uh, and it, I'm not saying it was a problem in the orchestra, but I was very conscious of always looking up. Um, so that's one thing. I, uh, I, I, I when, when we reviewed the show at City Center or when I did, I said that I thought... Um, that one of the reasons, one of the major reasons why this production works so much better than the original was somehow um, Brent Carver to me did did not solve the problem of of the role of Leo Frank, which is that he is supposed to be a fish out of water. Uh, at the beginning of the the, the show, he um, he seems quite remote from his wife. It seems like they, they don't have much of a marriage. Uh, there's not a lot of affection there. Uh, and so you're, you're not really with him um, at the beginning of the, of the show and for a long time. But I think that Ben uh, counteracted that uh, at city center. Uh, uh, I first noticed it uh, by putting in little touches of humor at, in the first couple of scenes, which is the only place he's able to do that before everything goes to hell. Uh, and I thought that that really, really helped um, to get the audience on his side. Uh, I, I did notice this time uh, uh, in this Broadway performance, some, I, some, what I would say, uh, maybe miscalculations in in his performance. I thought that maybe he seemed a little too remote from Lucille in those first couple of scenes. He, it seemed to me, he didn't even look at her when talking to her. Uh, and I guess he's just trying to establish the fact that they're um, that things are not that great between them. Uh, but I thought that if there had been a little bit more affection there, that that would have helped. Uh, uh, for some reason, this uh, took my attention more than it did at City Center, so I'm I'm not sure what what's up with that. But uh, don't get me wrong; I, I still think it's a wonderful, masterful portrayal, and I, I do think that it's largely responsible for the success of this production, along with the brilliant direction of Michael Arden. Uh, and by the way, I think it's so wonderful that Hal, Harold Prince Hal Prince uh, gets so much credit uh, for. Uh, co-conceiving this show to the extent that his name is is 
outside of the theater, uh, you know, the, and on those little signs that hang below the marquee, um, mm-hmm. big, big letters, Harold Prince. Um, I think that is just great. Uh, and I think, you know, of course, everyone involved has so much respect for him, most especially Jason Robert Brown, who uh, I, I think basically credits Hal with giving him well not maybe not giving him his career but certainly giving it a tremendous boost by hiring him uh to do the score for parade uh which was not a success initially but now is a great great success the cast here as we mentioned is quite phenomenal as i said at at city center i think that a lot of the best people in new york uh, you know wanted to be in this show even in some cases very small roles uh just because they wanted to be associated with um the project because they realized that that this is a really really wonderful powerful uh and very significant musical so you know uh howard mcgillan paul alexander nolan uh previously mentioned jay armstrong johnson uh eddie cooper <laughs> very small role um manuel felciano uh and uh my friend William Michaels in, in a small role, you know, the, the, the cream uh, of New York theater, um, a special shout out to Alex Grayson, Alex Joseph Grayson, who stopped the show with Jim Conley's second act number. And I, uh, as I mentioned, I had seen Alex not too many years ago as Melchior in spring awakening at the Argyle theater. And I knew then that uh, he probably was going to go places cause he's, got an amazing voice and a lot of charisma on stage and and really uh very magnetic on stage so that was great um uh musically production is is wonderful um oh just one last thing i i I mentioned that i do still think there are some flaws in the writing and to me one of the biggest flaws is that there are too many characters uh and some of them really don't seem necessary for me. Uh, the one that struck me this time, especially was the role played by Manuel Felciano. Um, because uh, he is, I, I mean, it, it just seems he's this journalist uh, played named Tom Watson. And there's another journalist character already, the one played by J. Armstrong Johnson. So I was like, do we really need two journalists? And uh, I, I wasn't sure what the function of this Tom Watson character was at one point I thought, well, he, he is there to um, put the idea in the head of the, uh, the uh, what's his name? Tom Dorsey, Uh, Mm -hmm. uh, the Tom Dorsey character, uh, the DA that he's going to run for governor. And so I thought, Oh, well, maybe that's why he's there. But then there's the following scene where Howard McGillan um, as the judge puts that same idea in uh in tom's head so it seemed like we really did to me we really don't need that tom watson character and i'm not sure why um all of that stuff is in it but it it wasn't a major flaw and i really um i i'm very thrilled and very happy by the um what's the word i don't know i don't know you'd say redemption but just the the incredible second chance Mm -hmm. that this musical has been given uh when it really was not that well received the first time Mm -hmm. by many people including me (laughs) and Mm -hmm. now i think it's just terrific uh i mean 
it it did win a Tony Award. Uh, oh yeah, um, for the the, the score. score. Yeah, the show. Yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, and uh, but it did it, it, by if you're measuring it by commercial success, it, it was not a success in the in the first run. Not right. at all. So yeah. Uh, so that is Parade at the Jacobs. It's uh, scheduled through August 6th right now. We'll have to see how that goes. Lots of uh, talk about Tony Awards for Michaela Diamond uh, and uh, a have, possible – yes, Michael? Oh, uh, I was just wondering, had you all heard that apparently Michaela Diamond had been up for the uh, Fanny Bryce understudy role? Yeah, in Funny Girl before mm-hmm. it went to Julie Benko. Huh. Yeah, uh, and I'm sure she would have been terrific in that as well. But uh, it seems like this worked out for her. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this yeah, choice worked, worked out, out for yeah. her really well. She's built over the title. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. So uh, as I said, it's scheduled through August 6th, but we'll have to see what the Tony Awards bring. And it seems to be a, a horse race between Parade and Sweeney Todd right now mm-hmm. for Best Revival. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about Sweeney Todd. Peter, you got over to L'Enfantin and uh, saw Sweeney Todd. Michael sees it uh, later this week, so we'll talk about it again next week. But Peter, what was your take on Sweeney? Um, <clears throat> it's a very good production, certainly. And um, my only problem with it, I have one problem and one problem only, <laughs> and that is uh, to do with Josh Groban. Uh, and he sings it extraordinarily well, no question. My only flaw that I found was that he does not seem to be a person who had been incarcerated for 15 years. He doesn't have that world weariness that uh, Len Cariou and George Hearn had. He, he seems to be far too well-adjusted uh, at that point in time. When, when he's supposed to go crazy, he seems to be more frustrated than crazy. <laughs> so that's the uh, problem there. I had worried about Annalee Ashford, and I'll tell you why. Uh, um, not because of performances I've seen of hers, but way back in the early 90s, I went to Paper Mill and I saw Sweeney Todd with Judy Kay as Mrs. Lovett. And while watching her, I thought, no, she's too young. A woman who's this young wouldn't be this desperate for a man. She would see other chances. And that's the way I felt about it. And I thought I was going to feel that way about Annalee Ashford. However, Annalee Ashford has an eccentricity about her, um, naturally. And so she she feeds into the eccentricities that Mrs. Lovett has very, very well. So um, there's a tiny bit of um, mugging and over-the-topness, but I don't think um, it, it, it sinks her at all. And I thought she was really quite uh, fine in uh, and very entertaining. So... What else? Um, well, you know, really, once again, I, I am truly, truly always, always in amazement as such um, a young man, uh, comparatively speaking, as Thomas Cale, who certainly uh, made his mark with Hamilton. But I think he's really so great and one of the best we have, and we're very lucky to have him. But he seems to me so wise beyond his years, because this is a tough show to do, needless to say. And he certainly was painting on an extraordinarily large palette. The sets are um, not 
that ornate and um, rather looming um, at times. There's, there's certainly a unit um, on House Right that um, <laughs> seems to be a, a crane of some sort. Um, but the set is not as ornate as the original. And of course, the original was criticized for having uh, too much uh, set and um too too big a space it was at the uh, then Eurus theater and um but no um it fits very well here i i don't think i need a lot of scenery with this show and um the fact that there isn't much didn't bother me as um as i've heard some people complain mm. jordan, jordan fisher as anthony hope sure very nice job with his songs i thought he was fine and um maria bilbao um <laughs> bilbao wow you know a term that we uh came uh, into contact with uh through kurt vile um, <laughs> but uh, a very nice joanna what's very interesting about joanna is that um aficionados of sweden todd can tell you there are three separate songs named joanna you only get two here mm. now um a little history um there was a song uh, that everybody knows from the original cast album where the judge is whipping himself while he's uh fantasizing and uh thinking about joanna and it didn't last long i i, I may be incorrect about this but i heard that it was uh dropped after the very first preview back in uh, 1979 but Sondheim wanted to keep it and on the record he said I'll drop it but I want it on the record and the fact is that because people became so um accustomed to the record every production I've seen since has used it until this one this one drops it I get the impression more than anything else that it was dropped because of time because this is a long show always has been always will be so I think that was the motivation behind it more than anything else um I don't miss it I don't know if anybody will, but um, I didn't. Gaten Matarazzo, um, who's really making a name for himself uh, as Tobias, <clears throat> very, very fine. Uh, sings, of course, his big song, Nothing's Gonna Harm You, uh, Not While I'm Around, very well. Uh, Ruthie Ann Miles, um, this is luxury casting because she is in a very small role playing the, the beggar woman and uh, doing a fine job of it. I also have to commend John Rapson playing the Beatle, uh, who has a beautiful voice and really makes his moments count. So, so all in all, this is a very, very fine production. I think we really do have quite the horse race here between Parade and um, Sweeney Todd. I don't know. One has to at least give a passing thought to the fact, will the two Sondheims cancel each other out, meaning the Into the Woods revival, which, of course, got raves uh, way back when. The the fact that it's closed is a liability. But really, um, each of these two shows um, has, has a have have many more hurdles to uh jump over and so i think they will be going neck and neck in this and i have no idea how it's going to play out okay so that is uh sweeney todd at the lunt uh michael's gonna see it mm -hmm. later this week we'll talk about it again next week uh peter what are your thoughts is yeah. it possible mm -hmm. that lunt yeah. would might have a long-running show well, they certainly have had in the past. <laughs> it wouldn't be, uh, I mean, even Tina was there a long time. Or does it seem that way because of the pandemic? It, because of the know. pandemic. I mean, yeah, maybe. Tina was um, there the sound the of music pandemic, was there. but... The Sound of Music was there, so... Uh... <laughs> um, looking back at the last long-running musical, Motown, in 2013. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh, let's see, the... Adam's family only ran a year. And we Little, Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast 
Beast oh, it came was, over. It came over. Yeah, it wasn't yeah. didn't originate there. So. Titanic. Yeah, you know, that still was. Yeah, yeah, not not a blockbuster, but did well. Um, yeah. So I don't know. I don't think of this as a, a as a death house um, uh, in, in the way <laughs> I think of some other theaters. Uh, it is a little strange, and it's. Um, the way it used to be configured where there used to be simply one aisle, but that's um, been taken care of as well. What surprised me, my memory um, of where the balcony was, was very different. I was very surprised. I thought the balcony was much farther back. uh, And I I was amazed the other night uh, to see that it was much closer to the stage than I had expected. Um, one of my dear friends um, was talking about, should I get seats in the orchestra of the mezzanine? I said, oh, well, you know, the mezzanine is so far back. I had to retract it. I had to email her and say, no, no, no. I, I think actually it probably is a very good seat. And by the way, I think Michael made an excellent point about parade being in the mezzanine. Uh, that hadn't occurred to me, but <laughs> yeah, I bet it does look good from up there. Yeah. Okay. We will uh, revisit this again next week after Michael sees it. So let's move on to the next uh, show. Michael and Peter both got to the Imperial Theater, uh, which had uh, its own little long-running skit there as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, Michael and Peter saw Bad Cinderella, Andrew Lloyd Webber's uh, newest musical to hit Broadway. So uh, let's see. Peter, why don't you start us off with that? All right. Um, boy, you know, this one I think really had tremendous potential. Uh, there's a real idea going on here, but it's so unfocused that it's um, that it's really uh, a missed opportunity as far as I'm concerned more than anything else. Uh, it's easy to dump on this show, but um, I, I think at meetings um, something went wrong that um, should have been addressed. Okay, what am I talking about? Here we are. We're in uh, this fairy tale type land um, and the concept is beauty is our duty and meaning that you really have to be glorious looking. Everybody's got to look sharp. Um, and needless to say, um, in a show where people have to look sharp, we expect that the costumes are going to look sharp. And uh, certainly Bad Cinderella does not disappoint us there. Um, Gabriela Tzlova, um did both the scenery and the costume. And both are very good. But um, the costumes, um, especially eye-knocking outing, and uh, they have to be because that's the whole point of the show. The beauty is um, tantamount here to Every uh, thing you could want in in life, and that's what Cinderella's railing against. She doesn't feel that that's a worthwhile value. Now that's good. That's a very good idea. However, must she deface a statue that's a, and put um, uh, spray paint where it says "Beauty sucks"? Uh, I, I wish the term sucks, um, I feel has passed its shelf life. I wish we could get rid of that term. It's very unpleasant. And <laughs> the point is, um, I, I have a big philosophy about two wrongs don't make a right. And here she is spray painting on a statue. Well, you know, really, that's not the way to, uh, get people to be more, um, <laughs> have better values. See, it's, when you think of Belle in Beauty and the Beast, you know, I mean, Belle really tries to do the right thing every step of the way. This, uh, you must say, uh, Peter, the show is called Bad Cinderella, you know. Um, so, but here she is dressed like, dressed like a goth girl, and um, she's got quite the chip on her shoulder. And it doesn't seem to come from uh, particularly the mother and the stepsisters at that point in time in the show. We'll meet them. Okay. So, um, 
but everybody's so stupid. It's almost like Kelm. I don't know if you know um, the, the fairy tales, um, the folk tales of Kelm. That's C-H-E-L-M. Uh, Neil Simon dealt with it in his play Fools, you know, but it seems like everybody here is, is very stupid. Um, lots of anachronisms. Right away, we hear about cellulite. And I guess one could effectively argue that this story might be taking place in the present uh, in this very strange land. I don't know, but it seemed very odd to me that um, we are hearing terms like uh, I'll take one for the team and um, many, many other anachronisms as well. So. All right. So why the thing about Beauty and the Beast is that it was sincere. I mean, why is a story that deals with superficiality and how bad it is to be superficial directed and written in such a silly way? (laughs) That's the problem. It's silly, Um, much too silly for its own good and for our good, too. So um, must she be must Cinderella be a punk rocker um, in in the way she dresses? All right. We'll come back to that. but it's, socks and sandals are mentioned as something that's really bad, you know. So, um, all right. Where does it really go off the rails? Well, the kingdom um, has Prince Charming, but he hasn't been seen in a long, long time, and he's presumed dead. So his brother, Prince Sebastian, is going to um, be the the new guy in charge someday when the queen um, certainly um, drops dead. I, I don't recall hearing anything about a father. I don't know. Um, King, I'm, I might have missed that while taking notes. But anyway, the queen is astonishingly silly. And I'm going to say something very controversial here, and that is on Monday night, there was uh, a benefit for five high schools in uh, the five boroughs of New York that uh, had won a competition, and they were going to be um, at the Broadhurst Theater showing 15-minute excerpts from the show. They did Rant, they did Crucible, et cetera, et cetera. So um, the actress who was playing the queen was um, indeed one of the presenters that night. And when I saw her, I said, you know, um, because she was introduced, of course, as um, being in Bad Cinderella. Grace McLean is her name. I said, you know, I have a feeling I'm not going to like her in the show because she was silly in the way she presented herself at that um, uh, event. Now, you might say, well, you know, there were all kids in the audience and she was you know, looking for easy laughs. But she seems um, silly, goofy. Um, and and yeah, to a degree, you want that in the Queen because again, it's a silly, superficial thing. But the old uh, trope of um, uh, when people applaud, you know, putting out the hand, saying "stop applauding" with one hand, and with the other hand, uh, saying "come on, keep applauding," that type of thing, <laughs> that happens. So, um, but there's not a moment of reality in what she's doing. It's all silly. It's all over the top. Um, really, the show should have been at the Winter Garden right after Cats, and they wouldn't have had to patch up the big hole in the ceiling because she's so over the top, she would have flown out higher than Grizabella ever did. So um, I, I, I thought that was really um, a disappointment uh, that, that she didn't have to be played that way. So here's Prince Sebastian, who's the only one with his feet on the ground, and he is considered weak because he doesn't seem to have the other values. To me, the show is all about him more than anybody else. Well, um, a big problem, too, is that Cinderella does run into her fairy godmother, and, and um, 
a very short scene. Uh, it seems to be very quid pro quo. The fairy godmother essentially says, I'm not just doing you this favor. I want something. And uh, what she wants seems to be so trivial. But anyway, so Cinderella is gets a makeover. And there she is at the end of the first act, looking glamorous and glorious. And um, so I guess the... M- point is that if somebody has the chance to really gussy up and um, it it comes free um, with very little effort on your part, um, you take it and you become one of the people in the town. Is that what's being said here? Okay, I can buy that to a certain degree. And by the way, nothing about this is criticism to Lynetti Gineo, who is terrific as Cinderella. Wonderful voice, wonderful presence. Um, really, somebody who uh, we'll see in a lot of shows, I'm happy to say. So, um, so she goes to the ball. Now, here's the prince who has met her, and he likes what he has seen already. So he's looking for that girl to come to the ball and when that girl doesn't come to the ball when cinderella comes dressed up and beautiful and he doesn't recognize her he's very disappointed and in fact his mother has this very strange um uh, demand that the girl he kisses at midnight is the girl he's going to marry which is a very strange thing. But anyway, you think the mother who has an opinion about everything would certainly not leave something to fate in that way um, that anybody could run up as the clock strikes 12. So uh, let me backtrack a little and say that there's a wonderful idea here that has never occurred to me. I love when there's an idea comes up that should have occurred to me years ago and never occurred to me because, of course, I'm very familiar with the Rodgers and Hammerstein Cinderella, let alone the story that I was told as a kid. But what's brought up here is there are two stepsisters. And the issue is brought up, you know, only one of you is going to get the prince. Somebody's going to be left behind. And that's a very good idea. You know, we've never heard that before, you know, <laughs> that uh, these ladies are really rivals. And one of them is going to be furious that uh, she wasn't chosen. So that I liked. All right. So what's the problem? The prince doesn't recognize Cinderella and she's furious with him. I'll never forgive you. She said, what do you, why? Why? Because he didn't recognize you when you, <laughs> when you didn't look anything like the person he was looking for. The real message of this story should be, I am so grateful that you didn't fall in love me with, with me when I was beautiful. You fell in love with me when I wasn't beautiful. Thank you. You are the man for me. That's where this story should go. But uh, there's this arbitrary fight that he has, uh, that she has with him. And it's very, very strange that she takes this attitude with him. And again, this is not a heroine that's worth knowing. So um, I think that's really a tremendous problem. Tremendous problem. They had a great chance to make a statement about beauty here, and they went in the opposite direction. So, you know, it's very funny. This the show has a scrim that's very fairy tale looking, and there's lots of vines um, on the um, representing the rustic uh, area, and um, the vines have thorns in them, and that's sort of a metaphor for me that um, the show has a lot of thorns in it. So, um, <laughs> but you know, it's it's too bad. Because there are some new ideas here, but I don't think they knew where the values were. They didn't have them in place, you know. So uh, that's that's the real thing. I don't think it's a disaster, as so many people have said. I don't. Um, and by the way, uh, I think the music 
is quite good. You can tell it's Andrew Lloyd Webber, but not in the sense that it's, well, there's a difference between um, reminiscent and derivative. And it, it, it does sound every now and then like um, measures of music you've heard in Andrew Lloyd Webber before. There are some moments that you say, oh, yeah, I heard that in Evita, you know, that type of thing. But it's very pleasant music. And I have a feeling I listened to the cast album uh, more than I might have thought, um, considering the way I'm reacting to the show. Um, so there's not a chance she'll forgive me, he says. Why should he worry about this. I mean, this this is just uh, very, very strange. So anyway, of course, it all ends happily. What else could happen? But it, it ends unexpectedly, too, in a, in a way um, that um, that we don't see coming and uh, something the audience embraced. And I'm glad they did. I like the idea that they're embracing what happened. I know I'm being purposely vague here. I don't want to be a spoiler. Um, but But really... Uh, it's, it's a convenient thing. It's very 21st century and, um, it, uh, it, it does the job, but, uh, it's a little too pat a, a solution. Uh, and things get wrapped up awfully quickly. But really, I find this such a missed opportunity. You could really be talking about the fact that people worry so much in Cinderella about being beautiful and how important that is. And that's really not where we should be coming from. So again, compared with Beauty and the Beast, where learning is valued and being nice is valued. This is a very different type of thing. Okay. Michael, how about you? Well, I heartily agree with everything negative that Peter just said (laughs) and strongly disagree with everything positive that he just said. I think it is a a disaster. Uh, And it's one of those shows you have to be careful when you're talking about it so that you don't just sound really nasty and bitchy. But I I want to avoid doing that while making it clear what an incredible mess I think this is, um, including, I, I, I'm sorry, I have to disagree with, with your opinion that the central idea is a good one, because I think it's, I think the basic idea of uh, reacting against um, unnatural standards of beauty. I think that is a good one, but it's done so stupidly here Mm -hmm. because, because even the fact that presenting that everyone in this town is supposed to have that opinion that we are, you know, we are all beautiful and beauty is our duty. I, cause that would never happen. I mean, not even in a, in a complete fantasy fairy tale, what, where would there ever be an entire town where everyone felt that way? Uh, I think um, the point could have been made much better if Cinderella was just reacting against the attitude of her stepsisters and her stepmother. Uh, And, you know, and as you said, uh, we certainly did not need the defacing of the statue. And that just was one more thing that uh, in my mind, made Cinderella a, a completely unlikable character. I I I I have to disagree about Linda Di Gennaro, Gennaro or however it's pronounced. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, I, I and I I'm sure that a lot of it was the inept direction of Lawrence Connor, but uh, to me she just came across as incredibly surly and unpleasant. Uh she thinks she's superior to everyone, which uh 
you know, I mean, and she may be superior in in the sense of of not being so superficial, but there's a way to show that. And again, that whole idea to begin with is so idiotic to me that the the whole thing doesn't make any sense. And uh, you you've recounted a lot of this already, but I just want to go over it again to show how nonsensical. It is she, as a synopsis. She lives in a town called Belleville, which means beauty city, beauty town, or whatever, uh, where everyone is obsessed with beauty. Certainly, including the men, every single one of whom looks like a Chippendales dancer, um, and they're almost literally shirtless or with open shirts throughout the entire show. And that includes uh, Prince Charming when he eventually shows up. Uh, and there's a gay subplot, which we, I won't even get into because it just makes me crazy. Um, Bad Cinderella is su- supposedly the outsider to the point where she defaces this statue. Uh, but even while she's singing a, her first song, Bad Cinderella, which is about her being an outsider, she's dancing with the townspeople, <laughs> uh, you know, the guys are lifting her and carrying her around and dancing with her. I mean, they could have made it a dance number without having her interact with them in that way. If the choreographer, uh, Joanne M. Hunter, knew what she was doing, but that's not what they do. Oh, and by the way, uh, there was much discussion before this show opened how the, the word bad was added to the title. In when the show played in London, it was just called Cinderella or Andrew Lloyd Webber's Cinderella. But now it's Andrew Lloyd Webber's Bad Cinderella, and people were um, l- wondering, especially because the reception in London was really not that great either, uh, how the reviewers here would react to that, whether they would take easy pot shots at the title. Uh, but I, I like what Adam Feldman wrote uh, in his review. Um, he referred to the addition of the word bad to the title. And his only comment on that was if the shoe fits. Which given the, yeah, yeah, given sure. the plot line, yeah, I think was really very clever. Anyway, back to the unbelievably idiotic and ridiculous plot. So Cinderella is so opposed to beauty, uh, to, um, so to, to superficiality and, uh, and outward displays of beauty and people being obsessed with beauty that she defaces the statue. But then suddenly at the end of the first act, she decides she needs a complete beauty makeover in order to go to the ball uh, and hopefully marry the prince who has been her childhood friend and who, as Peter noted, um, likes her just the way she is. So I don't even understand on the on the on the level of this show as it's presenting itself. Did you understand why she suddenly does that complete about face? You know, as, as odd as it may sound, uh, it's it, I started thinking about much ado about nothing. You know, with Beatrice and Benedict change uh, so quickly because uh, they, but they have more reason to do it. I guess you know, if you if you can't beat them, join them. Uh, it, it, it's I guess if we all have the chance to be beautiful, we take it. I guess that's the message they're giving us, and I'm I'm not going to disagree with that. You know, anybody who can make me look better, um, I'll raise my hand. So uh, maybe that's what they were going for, and I understand that. But still, I wish that she would come to the conclusion that um, it, it's better he didn't recognize her. Well, I think it's understandable, but not for somebody who's so incredibly militant <laughs> against the superficiality that she would deface a statue. 
So anyway, I, 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 I did not get it. So anyway, she decides to go to her fairy godmother, who turns out to be more like Ursula in The Little Mermaid. She's a kind of an almost an evil uh, character. I, I'm, I'm sure that's where they got the idea, I guess. Uh, I mean, uh, and, and as Peter mentioned, she demands payment in terms of this necklace that Cinderella treasures. Uh, uh, later and in, way into the second act, uh, she winds up giving the necklace back anyway, and that didn't make any sense. Mm, no. So the whole thing is just beyond description as to how silly and foolish and nonsensical it is um and yeah oh and yes and then after the makeover in which she looks completely different she has a completely different hairstyle and her hair has been dyed pink and she, you know it's now f- falling down to her shoulders whereas it had been up in her head on her head before and and she really does look very different she becomes incensed that the prince who liked her the way he was now doesn't recognize her. So that just made me hate the character even more uh, and be amazed at the, the ineptitude of the writing of this book, which for the record uh, says original story and book by Emerald Fennell book adaptation by Alexis Shear. Uh, we are told that there have been significant changes in this show from London to Broadway. I do not know the specifics of that, but whatever they were, uh, I, I, I can't imagine that it's an improvement. Uh, I, I was, uh, I was um, kind of upset uh, and, and astonished during the show that the reception by the audience was so over the top positive. It was. Given, given the uniformly very, very, very negative reviews. Yeah, um, uh, someone I know calculated that I think one of the review aggregates said that there were zero positive reviews um, and then several that were described as mixed and even more described as bad. Uh, so it's possible that everyone in this my audience <laughs> was right and all of the uh, critics were quote unquote wrong, but I I just don't know. I think it's more a kind of a mob mentality kind of a thing and people being determined to uh, convince themselves that they enjoy a show when they paid so much money for it, especially uh, a new Andrew Lloyd Webber show. Um, so I, uh, I think I've made my feelings clear. Oh, oh um, <laughs> the one pot, the one person in the show who I think it came across really well, and I would like to see again is Jordan Dobson in the role of Prince Sebastian. Mm. His material isn't really uh, generally any better than anyone else's, although I did think he had one truly lovely song called um, Only You, Lonely You. Uh, uh, I I think that song is is quite lovely in terms of the music and the lyrics, Uh, although even that didn't work so well in context because um, I don't think lonely is the word that I would use to describe Cinderella. She's um, more of a misanthrope. Uh, she's just she's just setting herself apart from everyone else, uh, you know, justifiedly or not. Um, so, but I think he was really wonderful. I I, I agree uh, with Peter's comments about the portrayal of the Queen by Grace McLean, and I sadly have to say um, the same about the 
fabulous, normally fabulous, Carolee Carmelo as the stepmother. But I would also say the same about everyone else in the show are directed uh, to be over the top. And it's almost like a a skit, uh, you know, a two and a half hour skit of making fun of those kinds of characters. Um, so I, I was quite, quite taken aback because uh, I never expected it to be that bad. Okay. So that is uh, Bad Cinderella at the Imperial, and we'll have a link to that in the show notes. Um, next up, uh, we have the Coast Starlight that's at the Mitzi Newhouse at Lincoln Center. Uh, Michael and Peter both saw it, and uh, I'm going to ask the rest uh, you guys to try to be brief because yes. we're running very, very long. And we do want to talk about Marilyn May, but we will have to cut her if we're not brief. Okay, so Peter, what did you think about the Coast Starlight? I liked it quite a bit. Um, it's uh, about people who meet uh, while traveling. Uh, and um, the the concept is when we, we're on a train, uh, and the Coast Starlight is actually is an actual train that does rain from uh, run from Los Angeles to Seattle. Uh, when we're on a train, we see people, and uh, we may think, "Gee, I wonder what's going on with that person." And that's what happens here. Mm-hmm. Everybody has a fantasy, uh, and sometimes fantasy mixed with reality about the people that um, one meets. The standout for me was Mia Barron, who has the best material because she comes out of the train and she's on a phone call and she's just furious and she's yelling and screaming about what's going on in her life. This person on the phone call, not caring at all who who's listening. We've all seen that happen. People who are just so upset. It doesn't matter who's around them. It doesn't. Let's hope this isn't supposed to be the quiet car uh, because <laughs> it sure isn't quiet when she's there. They're all very good. They all have wonderful things to say to each other, um, whether it's reality or not reality that's up to you so keith boone and uh, has done a very nice job of uh, writing it and uh, i certainly think that kind raffaelli did a nice job of directing it the set is very very simple all donato did it um, it's simply a bunch of train chairs not but they're they move around they don't have to stay in the same position uh, so you do have that and there's even a turntable so uh things uh look pretty good there at the small missy newhouse theater at lincoln center all right, Michael, how about you? I liked it very much as well. I think uh, that the author, Keith Boonin, is that how you pronounce it? I guess. B-U-N-I-N. I don't know. I'm not sure if it's Boonin or Boonin, but uh, he is a wonderful pra- playwright. And he uses this very interesting device here where the characters um, are often addressing the audience uh, direct address, but then they go into dialogue in in a very interesting way. Uh, for example, one of the characters will say something like, well, I was sitting there on the train when she came in and I said to her, and then he will say the line uh, as if speaking with her. And then the other character will say, uh, I, I, you know, I, I was taken aback by the question, but then I replied, blah 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 and it it's really i've never seen that done before i don't i'm not not sure what the word for that would be uh but i think it's an original concept uh as far as i know i i can't think of any other play that does that and it really added to it uh because you're able to the characters are able to share their thoughts with the audience while also engaging in dialogue that seemed really really naturalistic uh so i i thought that was a really really clever and interesting device uh i thought the entire cast was 
phenomenal. I have to signal out Will Harrison, who played this central character of TJ, who is a um, a military uh, fellow who uh, is basically kind of about to go AWOL because he's supposed to have reported back to base. He's about to be um, shipped off to, I think he said, Afghanistan. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Right. Uh, And he doesn't want to for obvious reasons. So he's he's kind of he's going AWOL. But even as he's on the train traveling and and contemplating doing that, he's wondering, well, you know, I still would have time to get back to base on time if I get off at the next stop and I turn around right now. And he's wondering if he should do that, because obviously it's a it's a very, very big step to go AWOL. Um, So he that's his struggle. And I I found his performance very, very compelling. Uh, I'd never heard of this actor before, but I think we will see him again also very well and all the all of the rest of the performers camila cano flavia reese coiro uh the aforementioned mia baron john norman schneider uh and michelle wilson as these various characters who come onto the train and and interact with each other uh and also with the audience uh very very well directed by tyne raffaelli and i uh, uh to me i i'm not ultimately sure what the what the ultimate point is, except I think it's probably what Peter said. It's just that we get to know um, these different people in a way that we we don't get to know the stories of of the people who are sitting next to us on a train or a bus. And there are what's the old line? There are a million stories in the naked city. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, it's it's that kind of thing. Eight million, uh, in fact, they used to say. Eight million. So yeah, <laughs> because it was eight New York when there were right. eight million people eight, in it. Right, yeah. 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 Um, so I uh, yeah, I really I really enjoyed the play, and I urge everyone to see it. Uh, and I I do think that this playwright is someone who um i i always enjoy his work uh when i see it which is not that often but uh but this one is definitely worth attending all right that's the coast starlight at the mitzi newhouse theater we'll have a link to that in the show notes peter you were down at the public to see uh the harder they come a musical based upon the movie so tell us about this well, uh, the real <laughs> the real message of this show is show business is really hard. And if you think you're going to get ahead, you're going to have a lot of roadblocks. Okay, so here's Ivan, who is a country boy who comes to the big city of Kingston, Jamaica. That's where we're at. Uh, and like um, Millie Dilmont, he's victimized his first day in town. All right. So uh, he gets off to a terribly bad stop, but he is so cocky he really believes he's the sun and the moon he really believes that he's he's going to be successful no matter what because he's he's just got great music inside him and nothing else can happen to him but great success i mean it's it's just ordained and that's all there is to it what else can happen to this um when you're when you're this gifted so you know this gets wearing and you really after a while you feel like you want to see him taken down a peg you know you really get too much of this uh on i great stuff so all right so he um he falls in love with a girl of course and like sweeney todd um she's been protected by an older man who has uh her in mind as his um wife same type of thing as in sweeney todd 
He expected, and of course, she doesn't love him. You're too old, she says to him uh, flat out. Um, so this religious zealot um, uh, abuses his power, and that becomes a, a big thing uh, in the show. What, <clears throat> what's really um, odd here is that the preacher has an, um, an assistant who says to Ivan, uh, you're not going to get that girl because I want her. I'm going to get her. And then nothing is made of that after that happens. Um, I don't think that somebody who's an assistant who at the outset doesn't like Ivan, that's established. He, he warily regards him. He's mean to him, <clears throat> would disclose what he's uh, thinking um, inside. He wouldn't do that. So that's a big problem. So uh, everybody seems to have feet of clay here. Uh, we have a, a music promoter who's a tyrant who offers uh, only $20 uh, for um, the song that Ivan wants to have promoted. And when Ivan says, no, I want more, um, he works very hard to make sure he doesn't get ahead in the world. So again, uh, we have lines like, we need to teach him a lesson, one he won't forget. That strikes me as a line we've heard a lot of times. Anyway, <clears throat> So uh, Ivan gets threatened, um, and he decides to get a gun to protect himself. Well, you know he's going to biddly bigelow himself into trouble. You mm-hmm. know, and that's exactly what happens. So well, the um, point of the show is that notoriety sells. Just as Roxy and Velma profit from their crimes, as it turned out, Ivan will profit from his crimes, too. And um, that's where the show really, really gets very, very strange. I'm not saying it's not real, but um, considering that uh, what we've seen has been so, so horrific in what the way people act, um, it's very hard to have any type of resolution here that strikes us as a nice solution to what's been going on. And um, the way they solve the problem is a little too easy, much too easy for those of us who um, would like to see a realistic ending. It's not a realistic ending at all, at all. Uh, much of the music from the original movie from way back when, and we're talking about uh, Jimmy Cliff, who did it. Susan Laurie Parks, um, who, of course, did the book, um, is responsible for some of the new songs as well. But um, it's, it's, uh, it's a very sad show in the vantage point of saying, if you think show business is, is hard, you should really take a look at how really hard it is for anybody to get ahead. And it's while that may be very true, I don't think it has to go to the extremes of what Ivan does in the show and what happens to Ivan. So, so a, a, a very unsatisfying show. All right. That's the heart of the comment to public. It's uh, running through April 9th, and there's a link to that in the show notes, plus a little YouTube video if you want to check it out. So, Michael, mm. uh, you got over to Carnegie Hall to see Miss Marilyn May uh, on a one-night-only Pops concert. So tell us about this. Yeah, it really, for me, was kind of from the sublime to the ridiculous because I saw Marilyn with the pops on Friday night and then that <laughs> Cinderella on Saturday. So uh, this was just a love fest. Marilyn, uh, who has been a guest on our podcast twice, I believe, um, you know, has been performing constantly uh, since she had a resurgence about, I think it was like 16 years ago or so uh, in, in New York and, and elsewhere. And, uh, Everywhere in New York, 54 below, Birdland, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and I, I honestly said with only a tiny bit of exaggeration that I felt like I knew half the audience 
at Carnegie Hall on Saturday because everyone in in the world uh, and in the city, it seemed like, <laughs> uh, came out to see what was billed correctly as her solo uh, concert debut at Carnegie Hall. She had performed there twice before, uh, both times with the Pops uh, as a guest, uh, you know, on a, on the bill with with other other fabulous performers but this show was all marilyn um with the new york pops and and in fact the orchestra only played three selections on their own without her singing they opened the uh concert with the overture from mame which i am going to tell you even if marilyn may hadn't been there (laughs) (laughs) it would have been worth it to hear that overture played by an 80 piece orchestra conducted by stephen reinecke and then uh at this start of uh part two uh we had um uh, uh, well, a medley from Hello, Dolly, because there is no official overture mm-hmm. uh, from that show. So it was Jerry Her- Herman opening uh, both parts of this concert. And then um, uh, oddly, oddly, uh, the orchestra played uh, an, orchestra, an orchestral version of Cabaret, the title song from Cabaret, uh, mm-hmm. which was a slight disappointment that we didn't get Marilyn to hear. Uh, we didn't get to hear her sing it on this night because she really introduced that show to Absolutely. the world. Absolutely, That's right. That That's song to the world. Yeah. Because she was a commitment singer and she, uh, her recording was released uh, and became some, something of a hit before the mm-hmm. cast album. Anyway, um, Very true. it was a, 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 an amazing, thrilling night. She was in the best voice I've ever heard. And oh. that's saying something because I've never heard her in bad voice, but it was just, just superb. Uh, the opener was her Cole Porter medley uh, of like a, almost a, uh, like about 10 songs by Cole Porter. And she did that thing where she, when she got to, um, I get a kick out of you. She sang, uh, my story is much too sad to be told. And she started to walk away, <laughs> leave the stage. And she got a laugh as she always does. But she came back and she said, if you think I'm leaving now, you're crazy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so the audience was with her. And you know, of course, in love with her from the beginning. Um, she went on to do It's Today from MAME, uh, her rainbow medley uh, of songs by, uh, well, Burton Lane, Ia Parberg, Harold Arlen, Marilyn Bergman and Alan Bergman, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, put on a happy face from Bye Bye Birdie, uh, a Frank Lesser segment of Joey, Joey, Joey from Happy Fella and Luck Be a Lady from Guys and Dolls. Uh, Lerner and Lowe, I've grown accustomed to her, his face, uh, she mm-hmm. sings, um, or, or your face, and On the Street Where You Live from My Fair Lady. And that was just the first half. Uh, Michael, and, um, yeah. since you mentioned Rainbow, did she do Golden Rainbow? No, uh, although that, yeah, uh, it's look to the rainbow, somewhere over the rainbow, make me rainbows and the rainbow connection. Okay. Uh, yeah. Because um, she did record Golden Rainbow. Oh, yeah, yeah, yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of her big hits. Mm-hmm. So um, I, 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 I can't. I can't say enough about it. It was uh, someone there said it was, this was our Judy Garland concert. Ah, uh, yeah. Nice. And, and I have to kind of agree. And, ah. oh, and on that note, uh, the one uh, kind of glitch, but it actually turned out in a sort of a wonderful way. Uh, there was a proclamation, a mayoral proclamation that was read by Stephen Reinecke during part two, making uh, that that day Marilyn May Day in the city of mm-hmm. New York. Mm-hmm. And she apparently was a complete surpri- surprise. She was somewhat flustered by it and really, really emotional about it. And so when she then sang um, 
which he then sang uh, I'm Still Here from Follies, she did screw up the lyrics a bit, uh, which is that is a tough song. And apparently uh, even Yvonne DiCarlo was known to do that uh, oh, yeah. during the run of Follies. Um, so Marilyn felt bad about it and she apologized several times. But I think everyone understood that it was really that she was just so emotionally overwhelmed by that proclamation. Uh, so that just made the, the evening real. And I remembered that when I used to sing at Carnegie Hall, <laughs> uh, when I used to sing at Carnegie That's Hall right, yeah. with, uh, with, the, with the gay men's chorus, uh, one night, one of our guests uh, messed up the lyrics and one of my friends afterwards said, well, it's the curse of Carnegie Hall, uh, referring to the famous moment on the Judy Garland at Carnegie Hall co- uh, album where she in you go to my head she's just loose it for a minute she's like you go to my head and i forgot the gall darn words uh so, so marilyn uh you know uh, i think hopefully takes comfort from the fact that she's in very good company with judy garland in uh forgetting the words uh, at, at carnegie hall as uh, many of us have done so um an unforgettable night and i was absolutely thrilled that i was there and marilyn it will not be resting on her laurels for long um uh, in just about a week or so a week and a half she's going to be back at 54 below for three performances mm-hmm. and that she has more in may and etc cetera, etc cetera. so see her when you can see and hear her when you can it's just it's just a magnificent experience that's wonderful so uh, before we wrap up for the morning, uh, Michael, we uh, is is there any chance that if you go over to Gail's Broadway Rose, you might see the next Marilyn Monroe, uh, Marilyn May, come, come up through here? You might. Um, this is a place I have not actually been to it yet, but it's uh, uh, well, it's in the venue of the old Edison Cafe, which is now called Friedman's. Uh, in the Edison Hotel. And uh, it seems to be a really nice alternative to um, the other famous singing waiter place, which is uh, Ellen Stardust Diner. Uh, that place has had a, a somewhat controversial history in terms of the way they treat people, uh, their employees, etc. cetera. Uh, so I think you might want to, if, you, if you're in the mood for that kind of thing, check out Gail's Broadway Rose. Uh, and I, uh, as I say, I have not actually been there yet, but I know uh, Nikita Burstein, um, who uh, is making a name for himself, he he uh, is or has been one of their mainstays. And Albert Nelthrop, uh, who was in my Bernstein show at 54, uh, he currently performs there. And he posted a, a video of him singing Feeling Good from uh roar of the grease paint, the smell of the crowd. And it's really quite thrilling. The The audience is just going nuts, including this uh, table of uh, young women who were screaming for him like he's Elvis. So I'm going to send that, uh, that uh, link um, to that video, which he has posted on YouTube, because I think it's um, it gives an idea of how exciting it might be to be at Gail's Broadway Rose. It's a G-A-Y-L-E apostrophe S Broadway Rose. You can Google it. I'm not sure um, exactly how often it happens and and what nights and what times, but all of the information is there on the website, so you can find out all of that info there. I found their website, and they have uh, really nice pictures of ice cream, so I will be going. <laughs> mm, what a beautiful story. Yeah. <laughs> 
All right, so that wraps it up for today. Before we get on to trivia and the musical moment, I want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of BroadwayRadio.com. There's a subscribe link. That way, each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be automatically downloaded to Apple Podcasts for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to us in Apple Podcasts. There's many ways to get us. You can support Broadway Radio and all of our different shows by going to Patreon.com slash Broadway Radio and becoming a supporter there. And if you do become a supporter, you'll be getting our shows earlier than everybody else. Uh, you can also subscribe to us in Spotify, iHeartRadio, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google Play, anywhere that you can listen to finer podcasts, you'll find our offerings there. Contact information for Peter, for Michael, and for me can be found on the show notes at BroadwayRadio.com, as well as links to some of the things we've talked about today, including some YouTube videos and production photos from the shows we've talked about. So, Peter, do we have an answer to last week's trivia? The first time the world saw this musical, written by a very famous team, they saw it set about 700 or so miles from where it would take place when the second version came about. The third version returned to the original location. The first and third repeating the same song that told of the locale. The second one also had a song that mentioned where it took place. So, what's the property? What were the settings? The songs? All right. What was sneaky about this question is the I just said musical, and I didn't say film musical, mm. which would have made it far too easy. The 1945 movie version of State Fair took place in Des Moines, Iowa, while the second one in 1962 moved the action to Dallas, some 700 miles south. When the property became a Broadway musical in 1996, the State Fair was back in Des Moines, where you heard all I O Iowa, as you did in the first movie, but not to be confused with The Little Things in Texas, a song in the second movie. <laughs> Tony Janicki who finished dead last the previous week because he said he was in the bathroom, <laughs> must have held it this week because he was finished first above <laughs> Sean Logan, who needed more guesses than anyone can whistle had Broadway performances. Okay, so this week's question, much simpler. What musical mentions the Duchess of Windsor, Leonard Bernstein, Ray Charles, Malcolm X, Adam Clayton Powell, and Jesus Christ? Hmm. That's quite a group. Isn't it? <laughs> quite a group. All right. If you have an answer for that and you are not Tony in the bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> Good for you. <laughs> email us at trivia at broadwayradio.com and we'll let you know if you're on the right track. So, Michael, what do we have in this week's musical moment? Well, for our opener, I thought we should commemorate uh, <laughs> Stephen Sondheim, who would mm -hmm. have been 93 on March mm -hmm. 22nd. Uh, what to choose uh, when picking one mm. recording of Stephen Sondheim. So I said, well, what the hell? We, uh, I, I thought we would go with the prelude from the original Broadway cast recording of Sweeney Todd, uh, which starts with that beautiful, wonderful organ music um, playing the that theme. Uh, and my Lucy lies in ashes. And, it, you know, it's heard in the show with several other uh, lyrics during the course Spoiler. of the show. <laughs> um, well, is it? <laughs> I didn't think so. But, okay. Um, um, and uh, uh, also, uh, this recording includes the factory whistle, uh, which fe featured prominently in that epic original production of Sweeney Todd, which apparently is not in this one. Um, so you, you won't get it. 
now in this show, uh, but you'll get it on that, on that recording. Um, and for our closer, uh, I, I didn't mention I had um, I had an interesting assignment recently. I was the photographer at Renee Taylor's 90th birthday party. <laughs> um, and in, among the very notable guests uh, was Marlo Thomas, who I got to speak with a little bit. And uh, I actually spoke with her about Free to Be You and Me, which was that uh, groundbreaking TV special um, uh, from the 70s. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, about um, uh, really, really ahead of its time about uh, gender roles and how uh, not, you know, uh, sometimes boys uh, and girls, uh, you know, especially at that time, were expected to behave in a certain way and to mm-hmm. like certain things and mm-hmm. how uh, it really w- was, uh, you know, kind of working against that in a really wonderful way. And I've always thought that one of the highlights of it is a is a really wonderful, sweet uh, and very moving song called William's Doll, written by Mary Rogers and Sheldon Harnick. Mm-hmm. Uh, about a, a boy who wants a doll and how there's really nothing wrong with that. Uh, so I uh, I really love that song and I thought we would include that as our closer because even though it's not from a a, a musical, uh, you know, a Broadway musical, I, I, you can't get much better in terms of uh, you know, Broadway musical cred than Mary Rogers and Sheldon Harnick. Uh, so uh, that is our closer. Enjoy if, if you don't know. Uh, that song. I, I hope you will enjoy it. I think it's really, really, really wonderful. All right. So on behalf of Michael Portantier and Peter Felicia, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. When day is through and any time my doll gets ill I'll take good care of it Said my friend Bill Wants a doll. Don't be a sissy, said his best friend did. Why should a boy want to play with a doll? Dolls are for girls, said his cousin Fred. Don't be a jerk, said his older brother. I know what to do, said his father to his mother. So his father bought him a basketball, a badminton set, and that's not all. A bag of marbles, a baseball glove, and all the things a boy would love. And Bill was good at every game, enjoyed them all, but all the same. When Billy's father praised his skill, Can I please have a doll now? Said my friend Bill. A doll, a doll, William wants a doll. A doll, a doll, William wants a doll. Then William's grandma arrived one day and wanted to know what he'd like to play. And Bill said, Baseball's my favorite game. I like to play, but all the same, I'd give my bat and ball and glove to have a doll that I could love. How very wise his grandma said, said Bill. So William's grandma, as I've been told, bought William a doll to hug and hold. And William's father began to frown. 
But Grandma smiled and calmed him down, explaining, William wants a doll, so when he has a baby someday, he'll know how to dress it, put diapers on double, and gently caress it to bring up a bubble, and care for his baby as every good father should learn to do. a doll, William has a doll, cause someday 